Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues surrounding the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs at the University of Southern California, Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University, Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Fernita, it's good to see you. It's good to see you too. How Uh, is everything? I think it's holding together. I don't know. You know, I was hoping that uh, this year would be better than last year. I was felt pretty pessimistic most of 2020. And I was thinking this year would turn the corner. Maybe you can kind of cheer me up because I'm not feeling so great about things at the moment, I confess. <laughs> I, I do think it, we, we find ourselves in an unusual position. Normally, I'm gloom and doom and you're more positive. So um, I don't know how much I can cheer you up. Um, in the um, weeks and, weeks since our last podcast, we there have been a number of events that I think we should touch on today, which may make you even sadder, unfortunately, right? We've had the insurrection at the Capitol, which um, I think will influence a lot of our conversation today because a lot of the questions that people have surrounding that is what's next, right? Like how do we uh, move forward as a democracy when we had an event that really was an affront on our system of democracy, right? The idea of violence in response to to Congress deploying its constitutional obligation to count the electoral college votes, um, which, you know, by any stretch of the imagination looks like you're trying to overthrow constitutional government. Um, And so I think one of the things our conversation should focus on today, and unfortunately, I don't think it'll be a happy conversation. um, How do we move on from that, right? How do we look at things that have happened in the weeks since January 6th and thinking about our system of elections, the legitimacy of our our system, um, election reform, Um, the Biden administration and what their governing priorities should be in light of the fact that a substantial portion of the population not only does not think that the administration is legitimate, but was willing to give voice and violence to that on January 6th. So, so much to cover. Um, And, you know, I, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a challenge, Ned. I think that you can help us end on a happy note. um, Even if most of our conversation is, is kind of somber. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll see if I can accept the challenge. I'm, I I want to be up for it. And I do want to be forward looking. I, I don't want to look backwards just for the sake of um, re- retribution or punishment. I mean, my goal is I think your goal is how do we run elections so that they're free and fair, like our podcast says, and the, and the will of the voters get their choice. And I actually was trying in the first few days after January 6th, I was a two minds because just you know the death and the destruction and just the attack and the assault left me depressed as I'm sure it did you and so many people but I was also trying to say it didn't succeed you know the system held the people got the the choice that they wanted and the insurrectionist failed Uh, it shouldn't have happened but it but it failed but in the weeks since then I felt worse because it seems like the our political system is not accepting responsibility as much as it should for what happened and how to uh, repair the damage done 
to our political system for the sake of the future. Um, and, you know, what I mean, I mean, you know, there's all this f talk about impeachment and this and that. And, you know, I don't know if, if impeachment is, is, the, is the best method of accountability. What worries me more than any particular method is, you know, a large segment of the Republican Party basically wanting to push it under the rug and forget about it and, you know, say, you know, I mean, Mitch McConnell right afterwards and Liz Cheney tried to say, this is intolerable. <laughs> we cannot have an insurrection in our capital. This was an assault on our, on our, on Congress, on our democracy. And the, the pushback or the blowback against them, these are very conservative people and the, and the Trumpians on the far right are squeezing them, mm -hmm. showing that they exert control. And this leads me to think that there's two things that I'd like to discuss with you today. You know, one is how do we get the right kind of accountability and responsibility for the so-called big lie that perpetrated all of this, right? I mean, there would not have been the insurrection except for Trump's repeated false claim that the election was stolen. And I think unless that big lie is, is um, redressed, we can't move forward because you know not one public opinion poll, but several are persistently saying that 70 to 80% of Republican voters be believe the big lie. Um, you know, so it's not just Trump's lie that's the problem, it's the pervasiveness of it. It's the fact that it's saturated into our political culture that to me is the problem. So it needs to be undone. And so how we go about doing that, I think is important. And then the second somewhat related thing is there is obviously this internal fight within the public Republican party between the forces of Trump and the forces of non-Trump and that the forces of Trump are winning, but that affects not just the Republican party, it affects our whole democracy and our whole society. And I think that requires us to think about structural reform so that the way in which the party governs itself internally through primary elections and so forth doesn't affect negatively on the general elections that all of us voted. And, and you know, I'm in here in Ohio and we're, I'm calling this now the Rob Portman problem <laughs> because our Senator Rob Portman, who was a non-Trump conservative Republican isn't running again, I think in large part because the Trumpian forces are overtaking his party to the point where it's like, I'm out of here. Um, so if you don't mind, I guess, again, I see it as two subsets of the same overarching problem, but how do we address the big lie and solve that? And how do we address the structural problem of polarization and, and our primary elections and how they relate to the general election? So that's what's on my mind today. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. And in fact, I've been thinking about this in two ways. So the first, as you mentioned, is accountability. Um, but I also view it as a I don't even know if it's a counterpoint or if it's intention with this notion of the legal framework that governs pretty much everything. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when, when it comes to accountability, and, and I think this goes to your point, Ned, about whether or not impeachment is the best device for this. It may not be, right? But when it comes to accountability, I think that we have to use what we have, even if it's not perfect, in order to send the message that people have to be held accountable. Um, so impeachment might very well fail, right? I don't think that there are two thirds of the senators who will vote to, 
to uh, to convict uh, the former president. Uh, but I do think it sends an important message that, hey, this is a democracy and you cannot incite your followers to go to the Capitol and use violence in order to change things um, because that's contrary to our democratic norms and we're gonna hold you accountable for that, right? So even just putting him through that process, I think sends a very powerful message, even if, even if impeachment is imperfect. Um, and so this leads to the second point about the legal framework. So we can say, okay, maybe we don't have the best framework for dealing with or responding to this current situation, right? But the important thing about using what we have is because if we don't, and we don't hold the president, the former president accountable, then it doesn't matter if we fix our legal framework in order to make it better. Because the legal framework is only as good as the willingness of political actors to enforce it, right? One thing that, so, so Trump in my mind is like a, a bull in a china shop. Right. He came in, he broke everything. He broke our norms. Um, he bent the law in a variety of directions. And so much of our response post-Trump has been, well, let's fix the law, right? Let's fix the legal frameworks. Let's address that problem while ignoring that, even if we fix it, if we elect the wrong people, they will break it again, mm -hmm. right? And so that's why, in my mind, impeachment is really important, even if Trump is not ultimately convicted because it sends this important message about accountability and it invites the fixes to the legal framework in order to make our legal framework more robust in response to a Trump. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, if there's no accountability, there's no democracy, there's no law, right? Because that's the lack of accountability is in, in essence a lack of, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, um, a type of lawlessness. Right, because Trump has done this horrible thing. Everybody knows it's horrible. And right now we're basically arguing about whether there should be punishment when instead the argument should be, what should the punishment be? <laughs> right? Like well, we are, and I think that's why you're so sad. Cause you're like, wait, we're not supposed to be having a conversation about whether or not he should be punished. The conversation should be, what is the most appropriate punishment for his behavior? And we're not having that conversation. No, that's exactly right. Well, can I try out a, 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 a an accountability type of punishment on you to that I've been floating around and, and wonder if it if it might work. Um, so I'm thinking about the use of tort law, and and I um I was inspired, but you know there was this lawsuit that the Dominion Voting Machine Company filed against Giuliani. I think uh, you know a few days ago, in I think in defamation, basically saying Giuliani. President Trump's, you know, personal attorney, who had been perpetuating this big lie or part of the big lie that the Dominion voting machines were, you know, somehow hacked or, you know, code from Venezuela. I mean, these crazy conspiracy theories. And Dominion says this is totally not true. It's affecting my business. Damages were suing and liable. So that makes sense. But I'm thinking that's only a slice of the problem. That's a portion of the problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering whether we could use the same concept and have, you know, we need to figure out who are the right plaintiffs and who are the right defendants to sue in tort. Um, and I, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about President Trump. I'm frankly also thinking about Vice President Pence for reasons that we could talk about. And the, the lawsuit would be the big lie is causing widespread damage not just to one company called Dominion, but to our whole electoral system and to the belief in democracy. So I'm thinking, you know, can Jocelyn Benson, Secretary of State of Michigan, 
be a plaintiff? Can Chris Krebs, who the fired you know person at Homeland Security, who you know who had suffered death threats, or again, um, Brad Raffensperger in in Georgia, who suffered death threats? Frankly, all the people who were injured in the January sixth um, insurrection, because that insurrection wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the big lie. Um, so I think there are a lot of people who have genuine monetary damages caused by um, the fraud. I mean, you know, Trump says, I'm a, you know, I don't want there to be voter fraud. Well, it was Trump that perpetrated the fraud and his co-conspirators. I mean, th th there was a, a concerted effort on the part of many people to perpetuate this myth that the election was stolen. It was baseless. There was no evidence of it. And I bet you through discovery, there could be, in fact, there's already news stories saying that Trump himself knew this was false. He just wanted to do it anyway. Well, that, you know, under the New York Times versus Sullivan standard, which is the First Amendment case about when you're entitled to sue for defamation, you're not allowed. It's, there's no free speech right to, to engage in knowing falsehoods, certainly not in a tort case. And, and so if Trump and Giuliani and Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell and this entire group of people, including, frankly, Mike Pence, until he bailed at the very last minute, they were all involved in perpetuating a deliberate knowing lie that had serious, serious consequences. And, you know, my goal here would be to try to have them do a forced retraction, you know, because I, I don't think Trump's voters are going to accept they're not going to accept if I say the election wasn't stolen. <laughs> For you, I hate to tell it. They're not going to accept if you tell them the election wasn't <laughs> stolen. And Trump isn't going to do it of his own volition. And Pence so far hasn't been willing to do it of his own volition. But suppose, you know, the plaintiff said, well, you know, we won't go after you for punitive damages if you are willing to issue you know, a public video retraction put saying straight in the camera, I was dishonest, I lied to you, I wanted to get a second term and I thought I should lie, you know, I mean, anyway, the, I don't, anyway, I'm trying to think about what's the way to hold him accountable. So I'm thinking about tort claims, I'm thinking about, you know, some sort of requirement that he has to tell his own voters that he was lying to them. Oh, Ned, Ned, Ned. I, you know, I, so I find myself, I like the idea very much. Um, just, you know, legally it makes sense to me, especially since when you think about the fact that First Amendment doctrine takes into consideration a person's platform, their fame, right? The more famous you are, the more damage you can do <laughs> to some extent, which is why you have these varying standards. Um, but I think this would even rise to the level of actual malice, which, you know, are claims that are, you know, really difficult to prove. I think that you could prove that in this case that the president's statements were made with actual malice. Um, but I'm wondering if that would even be enough to convince his voters that he um, made everything up. And let me explain why. Think about all every time that Trump was forced to come out and apologize for something that he really didn't want to apologize and, and later went on Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever the platform and basically went back against whatever apology he had just given. So for me, then it becomes like, all right, so a court of law has said that he has to issue this retraction. He issues it and then he goes on social media because I'm sorry, I have a hard time believing they're going to keep him off forever, right? Like that would just be too good to be true. Um, and then he immediately 
um, not straight out and says it, you know, because then he would be looking at possible fines from the court, but he sort of insinuates that he had to do it, right? Thereby undermining the message. I think we might find ourselves in that world. Um, so, so, but that being said, that might still be a better world than the one where we're currently living in, where he could basically make these statements and there's, you know, there's really no penalty for it. Uh, so, so I like the idea, but I just wonder if then we find ourselves in a different situation where his voters might try to rationalize that he was forced to say it and didn't really mean it. Um, because I think fundamentally the problem, yes, Trump is part of the problem, but he's not the whole problem. Um, part of the problem is also the fact that these voters have bought into this lie, right? And so when people have that kind of buy-in, it's very difficult to convince them that they're wrong, right? They have, you know, I mean, people came from all over this country believing that they were about to have their 1776 moment, right? They were very confused how they were condemned for what they did. They thought they would be celebrated, right? So to me, that just shows you they tried to fly home afterwards. I cannot get over the footage that people posted for showing people at the airport trying to fly home after you stormed the Capitol. Like, but to me, it said that the the delusion is is deeply in bed, right? It goes beyond Trump. Um, and so I think what you propose, though, to be fair, is an important first step, right? It is important for the main actors to admit that they lied. <laughs> right. Like just as a, a baseline for how to move forward, the people who spread the lie should say that they lied. Uh, but I don't think that it will solve all the problems because some of our problems are just foundational. Right. We have 40 percent of the population who are invested in believing that this election was stolen. No, I agree. Thank you. That's how I mean, I I agree. It's not going to you know, it's not like a, a magic solution. But I think, you know, we we have I, th I think we have to get the numbers, you know, if right now, 70 to 80 percent of Republican voters genuinely believe the big lie because, they, you know, the person that they revere, Trump, is telling them that, you know, if if forced retraction reduced that in half, you know, that's better than nothing. And that at least gets us a, a greater percentage of the of the of America recognizing that the truth was that it wasn't stolen and that, the, right? And that in fact, this guy was a fraudster. Um, again, it's not, a, it doesn't get us all the way there, but I do think it's better than our current um, place. And, and, I, and again, I, and I think, you know, I'd like to divide more of a wedge between Trump and Pence. I mean, I think, you know, Pence is more likely to fold, I think, if he was a defendant, but partly because, again, he wasn't on board at the last minute. And, and so, again, having Pence say we lied to you isn't good, as good as having Trump say that we lied. But again, it's a step. And, and, so, the, and, the, and so the more you, you, you get them having to own up to their dishonesty, you know, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's stage one of a healing process. It's not the final stage of it. I mean, because the, the other route that I'm contemplating, again, is the use of the, of the criminal law. And, and although, I, you know, I've written about, I mean, I, I think, you know, prosecuting Trump as a criminal defendant for inciting insurrection, I think is going to be very difficult. Uh, and, and prosecuting him for sedition which requires that he was part of a knowing conspiracy to use force, I think is also gonna be difficult. The, the question is whether or not, again, I, and I'm, I'm willing to, to I mean, our, our legal system ought to have the capacity, I think, 
to deal with major uh, conspiracies to commit fraud, to perpetrate great evil on the body public. And we've seen this in the past. So big tobacco, you know, it, it was an intentional campaign to deceive the public on the health effects of cigarette smoking. The tobacco companies had evidence that what they were saying to the public was wrong. They said it anyway. And they suffered liability as a result of their intentional fraud. Now, again, they're a commercial entity, but nonetheless, they were held to account. Likewise, and I'm not as knowledgeable about this, but my understanding is there have been claims against some of the big oil companies for, for similar kinds of fraud, or at least alleged fraud having to do with climate science, that some of the oil companies were in possession of information knowing the truth of global warming, and yet they would print in newspapers and, and, and advertise uh, things contrary to the truth. Again, if, 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 if a plaintiff can prove the deliberateness of that dishonesty, the, our legal system has ways to handle this. And although there are greater sensitivities when the deliberate dishonesty involves politics and voting, and I think we need to be sensitive to that, at the same time, we can't have a democracy if we can't trust the counting of the ballots. And you cannot have, as you say, 40% of the electorate thinking that the electorate was stolen when that's not accurate and that that's a consequence of, of a perpetrated deliberate attempt to mislead. So, you know, if we can't, I think, I think using the tools of criminal law are gonna be harder than using the tools of tort law, but I'm open to alternatives. So, yes, I, I do think that the tools of criminal law um, could also have some impact here, um, but I worry about the political courage it would take to go after a former president, right? Um, I couldn't even fault someone for being scared to do that, uh, especially, you know, given that people have received death threats and such, you know, when they stood up uh, regarding the January 6th incident. Uh, but one thing that strikes me is that uh, so much of making this right requires political courage. Um, and I just, I think part of me, I worry that people don't feel like it's worth it anymore, right? Like so, so much of the last four years has been people being punished for doing the right thing, right? So even Republicans who um, wouldn't have faced a penalty at the ballot box, right? Those Republicans who spoke out against Trump and they end up re retiring like Jeff Flake and um, a few others. Um, there was still, you know, a cost to them uh, for doing that. Uh, but it also, you know, one thing that was why Trump was effective is that he used them as a lesson, <laughs> right, to other Republicans about what would happen if they spoke out. And even though he's out of office, that is still sort of governing the actions of the Republican Party. So, you know, take, for example, and this seems like a lifetime ago, when he called the Georgia Secretary of State and was basically like, find these votes for me. You know, you could easily see, um, you know, criminal charges being brought against him in Georgia for that had he been anyone other than former President Donald Trump. Um, there's a woman serving five years in, in, in Texas for uh, voter fraud for voting accidentally, yet the President of the United States can call the Georgia Secretary of State and basically engage in a shakedown without any penalty, right? But so much- Although there, I think there is, I mean, I don't know if, I think I saw a news account that says that the local state prosecutors are 
contemplating a prosecution. Whether it happens or not, I don't know. But I, I, I agree with you. That that incident, you know, I think mm -hmm. we should mark it as potentially criminal. Right. And from your lips to God's ears, right? Like if they do that, that would be huge. But again, it would take courage. Um, and so because he has escaped accountability so many times, I think people worry if it's worth it to, to exhibit that political courage, because it seems like we punish in our, in our system, at least in the last four years, it seems like we punish the people who do right and we reward the people who do wrong. And so, so much of democracy, um, and, and you know this from you know ballot battles and, and all of your historical work, that so much of democracy requires that people actually act with sufficient virtue and put the government and, and our democracy first over personal ambition, right? But uh, when you often see and repeatedly see people being punished for doing exactly that, um, and those who are doing the punishing continue on in the levers of government, then I, I, it makes me wonder how we can survive. And I, and I hate to be so dark, but the very thing we pride ourselves on, we, we are, people are being punished, and being punished for doing that. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, no, I, I thank you for mentioning the term courage, because I do think that's, that's called for. And, and part of the reason why I, I'm depressed, and again, I'm trying to be more optimistic. Is, is, is there's no guarantee of success here. We can't take success for granted. I don't, you know. And um, again, you know, usually things are usually never as bad as you think they might be, or never as great as you hope they might be. Usually, we're kind of struggling somewhere in the middle. But boy, it seems to be trending in the wrong direction in terms of. The, the ideas of virtue that we were talking about encourage and 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 if and if too many people walk away from the basics of our democracy because it's just not worth the effort the thing can atrophy and and and, and disappear so I, I I really hope I hope we can turn around and I think this relates to the the second part of this is is that you know, I think this structural dynamic of how the way in which primary elections, you know, some of this is caused by gerrymandering, particularly with the House races, but it's not just gerrymandering because the U.S. Senate is not gerrymandered, right? Um, but, but, but if if you if you're a a Portman like from my state again, or or Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri or even a Marco Rubio from Florida. I mean, I think there are a lot of Republicans who, who don't wanna be especially Trumpian, but they know that they're more in trouble in a primary election than in a general election in certain states. And, and again, Ohio is a good example of this. I mean, if you, if you survive the Republican primary now in Ohio, you're a pretty good chance of winning the general election. Um, you know, after all, Trump beats Biden by eight points in Ohio. So, you know, a Trumpian candidate like Trump himself can win statewide in Ohio. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, but I also think it is true that, that the center of gravity, if you will, for the Ohio general electorate is not Trumpian, right? The, 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 you know, if we're getting all technical about this, you know, the, the most, and this is, comes out of the research I did for my 
you know, majority rule book that, that you know, I mean, about presidential elections and the concept of a Condorcet winner, which is a technical term for the candidate that would beat all other candidates in, in a series of head-to-head -head matches. So imagine a three-way, imagine three candidates in Ohio. You've got Rob Portman, who is pretty conservative, but not as conservative somebody like Jim Jordan, who's also from Ohio. Jim Jordan is a, is a member of Congress. You, many people may know him as, as a particularly vocal pro-Trump representative in the House. Can I just hop in and say, I think he wants to move on, even though he held, he did the Benghazi herons for two years, right? <laughs> but he wants to move on January 6th after three weeks. I'm sorry, go ahead. I just had to throw that in because I'm just appalled. <laughs> well, he did announce that he's not running for Portman's seat, which is interesting. But I still think for purposes of illustration, the point that I'm making is, is worth thinking about. And it would apply to Missouri or to Iowa or to Florida, a bunch of other states. But just for sake of illustration, um, what I'm, what I'm trying to imagine is three different candidates. One is a very Trumpian Republican. Um, the other is a non-Trumpian, more moderate Republican. And the third is a traditional Democrat. And the, the point is that the non-Trumpian Republican would win a two-person race against the Democrat in a state like Ohio. So for example, Mike DeWine beats Richard Cordray in our governor's race. You know, non-Trumpian Republican DeWine beats traditional Democrat Rich Cordray. Um, the non-Trumpian Republican also beats the Trumpian if those are the two candidates in the general election, not the primary, but in the general election. Why? Because all the Democrats definitely prefer the Mike DeWine type to the Jim Jordan type. Um, and so, again, to use the technical terminology, your non-Trumpian Republican is your Condorcet candidate, or your win, the one that is the majority preference against everybody else in the race. But our two-stage system boxes that candidate out. Because in the primary election, the Trumpian candidate beats the non-Trumpian Republican in the primary. And then in the general election, the Trumpian beats the Democrat. And, and yet the ultimate winner is not the one that the general electorate would have preferred given the three options to begin with. So that's, I, you know, again, without being personally ideological about it, just accepting what the inputs of the system are, the system is not aggregating the inputs efficiently and properly. It's like a dysfunctionality. The, the result is not tracking what the voters as a whole want. So I think we need to think about serious reform options that would allow the general electorate voters to get their preferred candidate without being boxed out in this one-two punch kind of situation. I couldn't agree more. And I honestly think, and I honestly think that a lot of our problem is that you have the foxes guarding the hen house, right? So the rules are made by the insiders. And so they have every incentive to make it difficult for um, majority preferred candidates to, to win. Uh, if that majority preferred candidate is anyone other than the incumbent, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, um, but but even more so, I think that, you know, having a system in place that can account for the preferences of voters 
um, it helps us to, I, I don't even know how to frame this, Ned, because it's, I, I view it as a good and bad thing. Let me explain why. It's good in the sense that it, it makes sense in our current system, right? Um, the system as structured now does not work in favor of the voters. The uh, What you propose does. But it might actually be bad too because it obscures a larger sort of foundational problem that we have. And so let me, let me sort of put this out there. To what extent is our problem the fact that the Republican Party itself just needs to be dismantled, right? And, and no, no, I'm not, and I'm not, and I promise I'm not- Sorry, I should <laughs> <laughs> no, I promise I mean... I'm not being partisan. Let me explain, right? Because one of the things I've noticed is that the Republican Party doesn't seem to be working for Republicans either. Right. So um, it's it's working for Trumpian Republicans, but it's not working for Republicans who are generally the kind of the backbone of the party. Right. The conservative sort of Reagan s um, small government Republicans who, you know, are the ones who, you know, are the ones who really sort of embody that conservative ideology. Right. That, that's the party that the Democratic Party often thinks that they were running against. At least they used to. Now it's just a completely different party. Um, and what it reminds me of is kind of what happened in the wake of the Civil War, right? So in the wake of the Civil War, and really what led to the war is that um, the Democratic Party split <laughs> in much that the Republican Party has now split between the Trump wing and everybody else. And I wonder um, to what extent can the Republican Party be salvaged in a way that just simply wasn't true of the Democratic Party following the Civil War? Yes, there was a Democratic Party, but it was no longer sort of this Aristotle, uh, this this planet, uh, uh, like this planner class sort of aristocracy that was driving the party, like was true in the antebellum era, right? So, don't get me wrong, you still had races in the Democratic Party after the war, but it was fundamentally it was a different party, right? The party was able to come back together, but it took the war to do that to sort of redefine the, the Democratic Party vis-a-vis -vis the Republican Party and the policy fights that they had after the war. Uh, but it took a war, right? It took a war for the, for the Democratic Party to no longer be a Northern and Southern wing, right? So to some extent, I'm wondering, how does this parallel our current situation? Right? Are we trying to adopt rules in a short term, in a short term that can um, compensate for the fact that the Republican Party is essentially two factions? That two factions that, absent some extraordinary event, will probably never come back together. And this is happening in the context of a system that does not accommodate third parties well. Right. And so it's really it makes me very nervous. That's why I said I'm not being partisan. I'm actually it's, it's actually quite terrifying to me because I can't it took a war before right. yeah, <laughs> so no. what will it take this time for the Republican Party to look like the party of Reagan again yeah no I, I, I I'm nervous in the same way I mean I I think I mean I think you're putting your finger on a really important point which is that the Republican Party is or what used to be called the Republican Party is clearly going through this internal rift between, you know, the Trumpian part, which is not where it used to be, but I think I think I think demonstrably there is more, um, just more numbers and more energy and more momentum in the Trumpian part of what's now called the Republican Party and what was traditionally Republican, the Mitt Romneys, Paul Ryan's, you know, the the business wing, country club wing, or whatever, the Republican Party 
is is losing energy, losing uh, power. And you know what happens to them? They don't think of themselves as becoming Democrats. <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, I, some people think that if the Republican Party splits this way, that this is good for Democrats. Maybe I, I, I worry and think that, you know, I think if the Republican Party, um, if the Trumpian, if the new Republican Party is essentially the Trumpian Party, I, 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 I think, I think the the old Republicans sort of fall into line, most of them, unfortunately. I mean, I think that's what we saw in the Trump era. You know, you had people like Paul Ryan not sticking up for their own values, but getting on board the Trump train. Um, and look, you know, even with this latest impeachment vote, you know, you got only um, five Republicans willing to hold the trial and 45 Republicans willing to stop the trial. So, you know, if you know, if if absolutely forced, the, the Republican Party is going to go along to Trump and 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 leave a few stragglers kind of left behind, homeless in terms of political party. And then, then it seems to me that the two party competition in America is between a you know a Trumpian party on the right and the Democratic Party on the left. But that's a that I think is a very unstable dynamic for the future of just, you know, fair play competition because the values of the Trumpian Party is not fair play. They've proven that. Absolutely. Um, and so, I don't know if that you know, I, I, I you know I personally, you know, do not like Trumpian ideology for lots of reasons, but if, if I thought that a party, a Trumpian party could have its populist ideology and play fair, I could say, okay, you know, people are entitled to their views as long as they're not racist and they're willing to treat people as equals. But if you're, if you don't believe in free trade or you don't believe what your populist, you know, but, but the fact that they are willing to subvert the system if when they have power means that if they take power, are, you know, I think they showed with January 6th, they're willing to dismantle the system. I would even go further than that, Ned. I would say that it's bad for democracy to have a party or a subset of a party in which white supremacy is a core tenant of the par party. You know, it's just it's just not good. Um, so even no, if Democrats, I agree with that. <laughs> even if Democrats think that it's good in the sense that it splits the Republicans and makes their electoral function, their electoral prospects um, better than they otherwise would be, it's really bad for democracy in the long term. Because functionally, what that means is that you're always going to have some subset of the population who feels disenfranchised and disempowered. Right. And if the Trumpian Republicans have have shown their willingness to use violence in order to be seen, then it's only a matter of time before things really erupt if they feel like they've been disempowered. Right. And, and I can see why they will feel that way. Right. If the Republican Party is split and you have the Trumpian candidates steadily losing to the Democrat. Um, or the Trumpian, even if they're able to defeat the more the more traditional conservative in the primary, um, eventually that's going to erupt into uh, some type of pushback or violence or what have you, because that segment of the population, they are numerous enough 
where they will feel disempowered in a way that I think could lead to violence long term. So, and 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 if you think about it, Ned, we're not out of the woods post January six, right? There's still these alerts co- coming out about the prospect of domestic violence, and so we're not even out of the woods yet. Uh, so. You, this is why I raise the question of whether or not the Republican Party just simply needs to, basically, we need to burn the house down and start over. Because I, th- this split could lead to a situation in which long term we see more violence because you have 40% of the population who feels like they have been disempowered. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't have a solution for that. I don't, I, it, you know, I really don't have a good answer to that because I just know historically this has never played out well. Um, it's always led to some really unfortunate situation or event whenever you have um, uh, some portion of the population who feels disempowered. Beyond the Civil War and the Confederacy, uh, one of the incidents I wrote about in my recent op-ed was the Wilmington insurrection of 1898, right? The, the white people in Wilmington, North Carolina felt disempowered because of a biracial fusion government that had come to power in Wilmington. Um, and by the time they got done expressing their dissatisfaction, 300 black people were dead, right? They had burned down, you know, black centers of commerce, you know, banks and everything else, very sim- similar to the Tulsa race riot of 1921. And so situations like this, and they never bode well for black people, <laughs> right? So this is why I'm like, we need to have serious conversations beyond election reform. This is a political problem and a cultural one as well. Yes, we need to have election reform. In fact, uh, in the wake of the election, you see proposals to make it more difficult for people to vote absentee. Not surprising. I think we probably alluded to this in earlier episodes about how state legislatures will probably make it more difficult to vote. Uh, post-election. Not surprising, those proposals are out there. And to me, this is a a broader reflection of the fact that we have a political and cultural problem, right? We don't have the the type of commitment to voting that we should have as a mature democracy. And we still, in our rhetoric, give, leave room for what Trump has created as a viable path, right? There's been, and this is why accountability is important. There hasn't been the type of repudiation of Trumpism and the capital violence that we need in order for our democracy to sustain moving forward. And as long as that is true, there's no election reform in the world that will save America. Right. So let me ask you this question, if I might, given what you just said, because, um, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I think, you know, the, you know, there is this portion of the public in the, in the United States as a whole that is not going away, even if the Republican Party itself as an institution is destroyed, and, or, and even if its leadership changes. I mean, what I think is so perniciousness about Trump, in my view, is that he has activated and normalized a virulent form of racism that is so much worse than even the latent, you know, forms of racism, if you will, that existed to begin with. Uh, um, And and again, I I don't think there should be any racism, but I also think Trump is worse than Reagan, you know, and Trump is worse than Nixon. You know, the Republican Party ever since Nixon has been on a Southern strategy. and so I think I think it is reasonable to claim that the Republican Party has had a racism problem for a long time that preceded Trump. But I think the Trumpian version of it 
is much more pathological and much more dangerous. Um, I mean, I hate to sort of say this because then I seem to be defending the Reagan type and I don't mean to do that except to say that, you know, unless we have another civil war, you know, we do kind of have to live together as a society. And, and so all of these people who, you know, used to have con Confederate flags on their, in their backyards and on their pickup trucks are, are still our fellow citizens, um, but they've been given a permission structure with Trump to allow their, you know, their terrible attitudes out in, in the open. Um, so my question is, is whether, again, since we can't solve this problem overnight, would we better, see what, what I'm afraid of is if we go forward with the same political structure that we have now, it'll be the Rob Portmans and the Jeff Flakes who are gonna be marginalized and they're gonna be cut away from the other part. You know, there is a two party system the way our democracy works. And if there's only two parties, the party that isn't the Democratic Party going forward is going to be the Trump Party with all of that, what that means in terms of, it's gonna be the white supremacist party, overtly so, with people like Jeff Flake saying, I'm out of there, you know, you're gonna have the Lincoln Project saying, we can't be Republicans anymore because we don't wanna be part of a racist party, good for them, but they're like a tiny sliver and, the, and, the, and what's left of the Republican Party is gonna be the overtly Trumpian party. Whereas if we adopted something like this Alaska system that's brand new, which is complicated and we could talk about it, um, I think there's a chance that actually the most virulent wing of the Republican party, um, you know, the, the, the 10 to 15% that is proud boys and three percenters and all of that, they become the ones that are marginalized because the, if the electoral process actually favors the more median candidate, the Condorcet winner to get technical again, then you kind of, that, that very aggressive, you know, Trump, the Pat Buchanan types in a world where George Bush is the leading Republican, they stay marginalized. And that would allow the, the, the party that's gonna to be to the right of the political spectrum to be less overtly racist, to be less Trumpian and more like George Bush, you know, and more like Mitt, Mitt Romney. I, so I think that that is a prerequisite to moving forward, right? For that Trumpian wing to become marginalized as opposed to the more conservative and traditional Republicans. Um, I don't need them to go anywhere. That's the funny thing, right? We talk about, well, we still have to live here with these Trump voters. I'm okay with them living here. Keep in mind, we still live here with the people who voted for George Wallace in 68. We also still live here with the people who was yelling at the kids integrating Central High School in Arkansas, right? Like those people still live here. So it's not about, you know, coexisting. It's about who do we want to be as a society, right? Like I want to live in a world where the people who stormed the Capitol and the people who defended are ashamed of themselves and they feel mm. that shame. And then, then they, like, if you ask white people today, if they supported the civil rights movement in the 1960s and they were alive then, an overwhelming number of them will say that they did. And we know that that cannot possibly be true, right? <laughs> that is the world I want to live in. I yeah, want people yeah. to feel like they have to lie because they know <laughs> they were on the wrong side of history. I'm okay with them staying here. 
<laughs> I don't need I, I don't need them to go anywhere. I know they love to tell black people to go back to Africa. I am perfectly happy to live here in America with you, but I want America to be a place where you feel ashamed of yourself for holding those views. And we are not there. And I right. really believe that is a prerequisite to going forward, right? Because I, Ned, honestly, I think you have laid out an ideal for election reform, right? This is a system that we need to have in order for the preferences of the median voter to hold sway. Yes. But until we reckon with the fact that we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% of our population on the wrong side of history, then to me, election reform is not going to fix our problems because eventually the whole thing will collapse anyway. <laughs> right. Mm. Because if, if anything, the lesson of Trump is even the, the, a perfect system would not have protected us from a Donald Trump. Right. And a perfect system, you know, would have not have protected us from Donald Trump's voters because those who hold the power are still sort of deferring to him and his voters as opposed to exercising the power that they, they do have without any fixes. <laughs> right. right. Like there should be enough senators in the Senate to convict the president, right? So they're not even using the power that they have in order to send the message that they want to send, that they need to send about who we are as a society. But until that message is sent, to me, nothing else matters. There's no fix, right? There's no fix until the Proud Boys feel like they are being persecuted. There's no path forward until the people who stormed the Capitol understand why they're being condemned and not celebrated. So Fernanda, I think that may be a really good place to 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 stop for today because um, I think you've captured you know, what we need to do, and and frankly, I think you've actually pointed a way forward. Again, I started. You've actually fulfilled the goal that I wasn't <laughs> sure possible for today. I, you know, I didn't think there would be a way to sort of see the path forward and to and to end on an optimistic note. And while there are huge challenges. Uh, and it's not going to be easy. I think you've identified what needs to be done, and at least we have ideas about how to do it. Right. And I think that's no, better than where I think that's better than where we started. So I think yes. we've been constructive. I, I I feel like we were able to work through and see a, a roadmap. I think we have a clear understanding of what needs to happen. I did not feel that way when we started the conversation. So this is all good. I feel like there has to be a part two, though. Yeah. <laughs> so no. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No. 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 I, I feel exactly the same way. When we began, I didn't know that we would see a roadmap. I think we have now the beginnings of a roadmap. So thank you. Yeah. Of course. All right. Well, you take care, and as always, it's a pleasure. Likewise. All right. Be safe. Be well. Until next time. Bye. 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 That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.